0: podcasting time i am jonathan isaacson and this is just another jerk dispatches from japan the podcast subscribe to the podcast wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts and please rate the show and if you have a minute or two review it and of course as always share it with a friend today i am coming at you with what is a good episode Well, I think it's a... I mean, I think it's a good story. And it is a history one. So, yeah, you can file this into the everything you never wanted to know about Japanese history bin. But let's just jump in. You ever heard of Shirase Nobu? Now, I'm going to guess that the majority of you just said no. And if you... by, you know, if by some chance you said yes... I would say that you are either A, lying. That's not nice. Don't lie. Or B, you have lived in, you know, the southwestern part of Akita Prefecture. Or maybe there's an off chance that C, you are a big history nerd who is interested in polar exploration. Those are my three options. You got A, B, or C. You're a liar. You lived in Akita. You like learning about the polar history. Now me, I fall into category B because I lived in southwestern Akita for three years. And I first learned about Shirase Nobu when I lived in Kisakata, which was when I first moved to Japan in 2004. Shirase Nobu was born in Konoura village, the eldest son of a Buddhist priest. Now, Konura, in case you're keeping score at home, is now a part of Nikkoho City, as is Kisakata, which is the town I first lived in when I moved to Japan. But anyway, yeah, um, Shirase Nobu, he was born in 1861 to the priest at the Jorenji Temple in Konura. The temple is still there, Um, There's a statue to Nobu in case you want to visit. So, you know, hey, look it up if you're ever in rural Akita for reasons. Anyway, so young Nobu was apparently a pretty bright kid, and he was sent to study with a well-known teacher in Akita City. Uh, So, you know, Akita City is about 60, 70 kilometers north of Komura. So not not no not super close, but not far. Man, apparently it was while studying with this this teacher in Akita City that Nobu picked up these somewhat ascetic teachings, I guess. Um, so and these are some things that he lived his life by for you know a lot for a long time. Um, so let's hear here there. One, no alcohol. Two, no smoking. Okay. I'm with you so far. Three, no drinking tea. Okay. We're starting to get a little, little weird, especially here in Japan where tea is a big thing. Uh, four, no drinking hot water. Okay. Now you kind of lost me five, no using fire, even in midwinter. Okay. And, um, in case you didn't realize, so Akita, it's in northern Japan, and it's not warm in the winter. So, yeah, I, I yeah. anyway, apparently Shirase Nobu would go on to keep these rules for the rest of his life. So, good for him, I guess. Huh? He also learned about the great Um, scare quotes, great European explorers while studying. And he learned about the North Pole when he was 11 years old, and apparently he decided that he wanted to become an explorer himself. You know, normal childhood dreams for a lot of people, I would guess. Anywho, Nobu, and I don't know why, but, you know, I've just decided that I'm going to keep referring to him mostly by his given name rather than his family name, right? Shirase is his family name, Nobu. Apparently, he, he changed his name at some point in his life, but primarily he's known as Nobu. Shirase Nobu. Uh, so anyway, yeah, Nobu's his given name. That's what I'm going to call most of this episode for reasons. I don't know. Just go with it. So Nobu moved to Tokyo at age 18 to study to become a proper Buddhist priest, just like his father. But, in short order, he decided that he wanted to join the army. His reasoning? If he became a Buddhist priest, he probably wouldn't be able to become an explorer. And I mean, you know, by this point in history, he was probably right. Uh, I mean, maybe... A couple of centuries earlier, you know, 1500s, 1600s, Buddhist priest, you know, it might have been possible to be an explorer, but late 1800s, yeah, not a lot of, you know, the great holy men, you know, explorer-adventurer types. But, you know, so yeah, it made sense to choose the army if that was his goal. Like I said, it was also around this time that he changed his name to Nobu, which, like I say, he, he went by a couple names. Nobu was not his birth name. He was apparently, uh, his, his given name at birth was uh, Chikyo, and I'm not exactly sure why he changed it, but it was around the same time that he joined the army that he changed his name. Not really that important, but if you look at some of the reports and things, you okay, like the, the write-ups of him, you will occasionally see him today, see the name Chikyo, and that was his that was his actual given name at birth. Uh, but anyway, right. So he became a lieutenant in the Imperial Army, and this is when those Spartan ways that he picked up, you know, at the school in Akita, they probably really helped him. Um, So he was sent to the Northern Kurile Islands, which is a chain of islands that extend. um, So you look at a map, look at Hokkaido and look to the upper right of Hokkaido. And there's a chain of islands that run from Hokkaido up to the Kamchatka Peninsula in Russian Siberia. And these islands were from 1875 until 1945 Japanese territory. And our friend Nobu, he was part of a mission to the Kuriles. And the goal of the mission was to set up a permanent Japanese presence on these islands. Um, Though apparently this is kind of just kind of a little side note here. There was a covert plan to send troops to Alaska to to join, to collect military intelligence Apparently, Um, I don't know that anything ever came of that. But yeah, apparently that was kind of there was also there were there were plans to go, you know, send some of the troops to Alaska. Okay. Um, However, the mission was apparently pretty poorly organized and didn't really accomplish much of anything other than getting members of the party killed by the harsh conditions Now, it was the winter of 1863, that's right, 1863, 1893 and 1894, and the conditions were particularly harsh, apparently, this, this particular winter, and his unit was not prepared, and so 10 people died over the course of that winter, and if you know your Japanese history, winter 1893, 1894, right? that is right before the first sino-japanese war right the the, the war between china and japan the leader of nobu's uh, unit in the northern kuriles was sent to the sino-japanese war and only six men including nobu so nobu and five others were left on shumshu island now i forget there's it has a name in russian but the jap i I think the name of the Japanese is Shunshu, which is, it's an Ainu name. Uh, but anyway, it's one of the northern Kurile Islands. Now, the second winter there, so we're here is 1894, 1895, another three men died. So, out of the six, three die. Now, Nobu blamed the failure of the mission on poor planning and preparation, and I mean... Based on the outcome, he was probably right. I mean, if you're if, if, you know, 10 people die one year and half, you know, three of the next of six the next winter, there was some planning problems, I'm guessing. And while the mission ended in almost complete failure, the experience was useful in that it taught or, you know, maybe reinforced some of important rules and practices for dealing with harsh climates and conditions, which is something that would be very useful if he wanted to go and explore the Poles. Nobu would go on to serve in the Imperial Army for another decade, more than, actually more than a decade. He served in the Russo-Japanese War of 1904-1905 And he was in the he was at the Battle of Sandepu, which is a which was a major battle in Manchuria uh, in in northeast China. Today's northeast China uh, at the time was known as Manchuria. And yeah, he he was there. He was at this one of this major battle in the Russo-Japanese War. And he was wounded in his in his right hand and his chest. Although it doesn't seem that the injuries were that, they, they were not, obviously they weren't fatal because he survived. Um, and, uh, and he was later promoted to first lieutenant. Now, after the war, he was still dreaming of exploring the Arctic. He had dreams of being the first person to reach the North Pole. But, after news of both Frederick Cook and Robert Perry, I didn't know had never heard of Frederick Cook apparently he at the, at the time he was kind of a deal, big deal, but anyway, his his claim was has mostly been discredited at this point. but anyway, Frederick Cook, Robert Perry, they both claimed that they had reached the North Pole. and so Shirase Nobu, he turned his sights to the south, as did many others, including notably. Robert Falcon Scott, and Roald Amundsen. So, our boy Nobu, he got some help from some pretty prominent people, including a former prime minister of Japan. And he got the funds together to buy a boat. Now, by all accounts, it was not a terribly large boat. It was just a a regular sailing, a fishing boat. And, Right, it, it, the boat was small enough that sailors from other countries would later note that they wouldn't want to try sailing into polar waters in this particular boat. But the Kainan Maru, as the boat was called, the so this boat, Maru is a very common ter- name, like part of a Japanese boat name. So the Kainan Maru was retrofitted with steam engines. So it had both sails and a steam engine, which meant it could traverse the seas, either uh, running on wind power or with coal. And on the 28th of November, 1910, Shirase Nobu and his crew of 27 men, several of whom were of Ainu descent. They uh, they may have actually been full-blooded Ainu. I don't know. I, I couldn't find that for sure, but... Um, but it, you had 27 men, several of whom were Ainu or Ainu descent, and 28 dogs. They set off. Now, the the I, I make the point of talking about the Ainu people because... So the Ainu would have been from Hokkaido, which is where the Ainu people mostly live. And this was not a great time in Japan to be Ainu. Um, this is shortly after... The Ainu language was banned from use and, and and the traditional Ainu way of life was basically legislated out of existence. Um in, in case you're you're missing you, you don't know the story, the Ainu are the indigenous people of northern Japan, particularly Hokkaido. Um they're not the same ethnically as Japanese people, but in, anyway, so yeah, the Ainu like many indigenous peoples in the late 19th, early 20th century, well, most of the 20th century, they were not treated well. So this was not a great time to be Ainu if you're in Japan. But in a a situation like this, they certainly would have been a very welcome addition to an undertaking such as a polar expedition. Ainu people were traditionally hunters, fishers, they would have had a lot of very useful outdoor skills, right? Especially, you know, for dealing with cold weather. They're from Hokkaido, which is cold and snowy. But I digress. Not That's not our main point here. Nobu and his men, they had some problems actually getting started. You know, they made a stop in the port to trim cargo before they finally departed Japan for real on December First, so like three days after they actually set out three four days anyway they took them a few days to actually get out of japan and they set sail and headed down to new zealand now unfortunately the weather was pretty terrible for most of their long voyage from japan down to new zealand apparently a lot of their dogs died in route um I think I say they, they. I think I was reading they had twenty eight dogs to start, and like twelve, maybe it was either. I think it was, no, it was twelve survived, sixteen died, in the just the trip down to New Zealand. Um, you know, just not enough. Like, the, the, I think some the ringworms, they had some some parasite problems. It was just not good for the dogs. Anyway, yeah, it it, it didn't go well for the dogs. They finally arrived in Wellington in, in New Zealand on the 7th of February, 1911. So it took them a couple of months, month and a half, to get down to New Zealand. And this was way too late in the season to realistically make it to the South Pole. Now, Amundsen's and Scott's expeditions were already set up on the Antarctic continent, Nobu and his men, they were going to stay in Wellington just for a few days to restock, uh, make their final preparations for sailing south. During their short stop over New Zealand, however, the, new, the Japanese party met with a lot of suspicion and racism initially, initially. right? Their boat seemed too small. To, to a lot of New Zealanders, to a lot of Kiwis, it, it, the boat was too small to be a legitimate Antarctic expedition, a lot of people thought. right? Their charts, their provisions, they were out of date, and they were insufficient, respectively. right? And some of the Kiwis, they mocked the Japanese crew as gorillas sailing about in a miserable whaler. Words that apparently stung Nobu pretty badly, and I can't blame him. I mean, it was pretty blatant, miserable racism. But the Japanese party persisted, right? They managed to find better charts, and apparently their their stick-to-itiveness earned them at least some grudging, maybe even some genuine respect in New Zealand. Right. By the time they were ready to ship out from New Zealand, you know, about four, I, guess, I think it was four days later, a newspaper in Christchurch offered. And this is a quote, the last Godspeed to the plucky little band of explorers from the Far East. i pretty condescending, but at least it was better than calling the Japanese sailors gorillas. Right. They're plucky little explorers, a little band of a little band of explorers. Again, kind of condescending, but, you know, it's better than being called a gorilla. So they ship out of New Zealand, and after shipping out again on the 11th of February, the Kainan Maru ran into rough weather again. But they sailed on, and on the 17th, they spotted their first penguin. Which, when you think about it... Now, this is 1911, right? These men are from a country that it had opened up to the world relatively recently. Japan had a long history of being closed. Nothing got in, nothing got out. A penguin would have been completely alien to like a live, actual, wild penguin would have been completely alien to these men, right? I'm sure... They had read about penguins. I'm sure they had seen illustrations. 1911, they might have even seen a photo of a penguin. But yeah, I mean, seeing your first real, live, in the flesh penguin. I mean, for me, that's like the first time I saw a monkey in the wild. That was exciting. I still get excited about seeing monkeys in the wild. But yeah, so they saw their first penguin on the 17th of February. And the men sailed on further and further south. And apparently on the 1st of March, they saw a really beautiful aurora australis, australial, uh, the, the, the southern lights. And on the 6th of March, they spotted the mountains in Antarctica. They were pretty far off in the distance, but they did spot them. However, the weather and increasing sea ice meant that they would be unable to make land that year. So they decided to sail north out of the ice, which was no small feat. But the sailors, led by their ship's captain, a man named Nomura Naokichi, they successfully sailed through the increasing ice and they made it safely to Sydney, where they hoped to stay for, you know, basically a year, you know, half a year to a year, so they could make another attempt the following season. Now, in Sydney, they initially, you know, they initially, they, they faced the same kind of skepticism and likely the same racism that they had faced in New Zealand. Now, it's worth mentioning here that in night, sorry, 1895, Japan had defeated China in the first Sino-Japanese War. And then in 1904 and 1905, Japan defeated Russia in the the Russo-Japanese War. And this was the first time that a non-European power had defeated a European country in a war. And yes, I mean, for for the sake of this discussion, the U.S. colonies were seen as a European power because of... um, you you know why. If you don't know why, just you need to read a few more books. The U.S., places like Australia, they are considered, for all intents and purposes, European countries. Anyway. So, yeah. Uh, right, yeah. Da, da, da. Anyway, yeah, Japan... Right. They are now be, they, they were being eyed somewhat suspiciously by Western nations, by European countries, places like Australia, New Zealand, the U.S. They didn't want other countries to be, you know, they didn't want them to one up them in the colonial colonialism game. And that played a major role in the reception that Nobu and his men got in both New Zealand and then here in Sydney and Australia. But there was a Welshman by the name of Tannet William Edgeworth David, who now lived in Australia, and he was teaching geology at the University of Sydney. Sir Edgeworth David had been a member of Ernest, Ernest Shackleton's Antarctic Expedition a few years prior, and he believed no men when they said that they were an Antarctic Expedition Party. And his support, you know, this tenant William Ed, Edward David, his support helped turn the public opinion in favor of the Japanese men. And Nobu and his men, they became, they be, kind of became minor celebrities in Sydney in 1911. Right, People would come down to the harbor, come down to the bay where the Japanese men had made their camp and they would take pictures with them, Right. It was like, hey, let's go see the let's go see these Japanese guys. They're going to south. They're going to the South Pole. Let's go see them. Let's go take pictures with them. They were they were minor celebrities. And by nineteen eleven uh, November of nineteen eleven, sorry, by November of nineteen eleven, the Kainan Maru had been restocked. There were two new crew members because some people got sick over the year. Got you know they couldn't continue, so they were replaced. Two new crew members. And a new team of dogs arrived from Japan, and bef- they they were ready to leave ready to leave head off towards the South Pole. And before they left, Shirase Nobu reportedly said to Sir Edgeworth David, and here this is a quote: "You were good enough to set the seal of your magnificent reputation upon our bona fides." and to treat us as brothers in the realm of science. Whatever may be the fate of our enterprise, we will never forget you. And then after that, Nobu presented the Welsh geologist with a samurai sword, which, if you know the culture, was kind of a big deal. You know, game recognizing game, I guess you could say. I mean, Edward, David had done that for for uh Nobu and his men, right? He said, nope, you guys are you guys are explorers, I recognize you. And they turned around and said, Thank you. So, right, game recognize game. And on November 19th, the Kainan Maru sailed out of Sydney Harbor, and in a complete contrast to their arrival, they were cheered on by the residents of Sydney. And Tanet William. Edworth, David, and others sailed a short way. There's an island just kind of out in Sydney. I think it's called Shark Island. They sailed out uh, as far as Shark Island with the Japanese crew and then said their goodbyes, good lucks. Now, by this point, the goal of the expedition had changed. Nobu knew that at this point, Amundsen and Scott They were probably too far ahead of the Japanese team, so there was no chance to be the first to reach the South Pole. So, Nobu decided it would be better to focus on more modest goals, on scientific goals, surveying goals. And I won't go into a whole lot of details about the actual expedition. I'll just hit some of the highlights pretty quickly here. So, they first made land in Antarctica on January 16th after a brief but frightening encounter with a pod of orcas. And once in Antarctica, they briefly encounter the Norwegian party of Amundsen's men. Now, the Japanese uh, team, their first landing site, it didn't have any suitable location to unload. So they pushed out to sea again, and on the 19th, they were able to find a suitable landing site, and seven men, including Nobu and two of the Ainu men, uh, the, the Ainu, they were the dog drivers, they got off the boat. And they were not really prepared for the harsh climate of Antarctica. But they were still able to travel about 250 kilometers in the eight days that they traveled south they became only the fourth group in history to ever pass the 80 degrees south latitude line. The weather conditions coming back to the coast apparently were much better, and it only took them about three days to return, which was possibly the fastest polar sledding you know, time, ever at, up to that point. And apparently it's kind of a little not a not a big thing, but apparently the the so seven got off the boat, two stayed at base camp, five took the trek inland. And the men who made the 250 kilometer trek, when they got back to base camp, apparently they were so tired that they slept at base camp for about 36 hours to recover. I mean, I'm sure they woke up to eat and relieve themselves, but yeah, basically they spent a day and a half in their tents, basically just sleeping to recover. Now, the other men, the, men, the besides the seven who got off, the other, other men, they stayed on the Kainan Maru and they sailed further east. And they became the first group to ever make a successful landing from sea on the King Edward VII land. And they collected some rock samples. They hiked to the edge of the Alexandra Mountains. Uh, They also managed to sail the furthest east, right, that anyone had ever, you know, done in Antarctica, right? And finally, they sailed back to the seven who had done the trekking over land, right? Nobu and the the two Ainu men and the others. And they picked them up in pretty bad weather that unfortunately, here's like a really kind of a sad note here. They were like they were barely able to get the seven men back on the boat and unfortunately the weather was so bad that it forced them to leave their dogs behind and this was something that nobu never forgot his entire life right he included the dogs in his daily prayers for the rest of his life I remember this is a man who he his he's the son of a Buddhist priest so he I'm sure he was very Very earnest in his prayers. So yeah, he he never forgot those dogs. The Kainan Maru then began the long journey back to Japan, arriving in Tokyo on June 20th, 1912. While they had not reached the South Pole, the expedition did in fact prove that Japan could mount a creditable, like a credible, 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 there we go, they could mount a credible Antarctic expedition, right? Of all the humans that went, no one suffered any serious injuries. I mean, they did lose a lot of their doggos, but it was the it was the earliest part of the 20th century, and while regrettable, that sort of thing was seen as par for the course. I mean, I think in you know modern times we feel differently, but in, remember, it's 19, 1912. People feel differently about animals, but obviously, I mean, Nobu—he, it, it, bothered him. Um, actually, it bothered me just thinking about it. But like I say, um, it was early, earliest part of the 20th century, and that was just that was par for the course. The exhibition did also provide some important scientific information about the parts of Antarctica they visited, and so. Nobu and his men, they were greeted in Tokyo as heroes, but that was to be pretty short-lived. Shortly after their return, I think about a month and a half or so, the emperor of Japan died. This is the Meiji emperor. Um, Pretty big deal, right? He's the one who kind of returns Japan to the international stage. Um, The Meiji emperor died shortly after their return from the South Pole, and... The country's attention shifted. And Shira Nobu was soon almost completely forgotten. I mean, he still owed large sums of money because remember, I don't actually don't remember I, to remember. I mean, his uh his was not a government-backed expedition, it was a private enterprise, right? He had to pay his backers, and it took him over 20 years to fully do, do so, but he he did some he he sold his houses in in places that he had houses he uh worked in fur trade in the, the Kuril Islands and he was able to completely pay off his debts and he became the honorary president of the Japanese Polar Research Institute in 1933 i mean pretty fitting and he passed away pretty quietly pretty in, in relative obscurity in 1946. Now today, Shirase Nobu is commemorated in several places around the world. Um, the Bay in Sydney, where he and his men camped out for more than half a year. There's a commemorative plaque dedicated to the men. The Australian Museum in Sydney has the sword that Nobu gave to Tana William Edward david Right. I think his I think uh Sir, Sir Edward edgeworth Sir Edgeworth David the, his daughter donated the sword to the museum um uh, in I think nineteen seventy nine not really important but yeah and the Konora district of Nicoho City, so Konora where that was the place where nobu was born it became part of Nico there's a really nice museum. About his life, as well as just Antarctica in general. Um, I've been there; it's, it's, it's very nice. It's a well done. Little, it's it's not big; it's small, but it's a very nice little local museum. And while his story is much less known, you know, people don't know about it when you think about the south, the race to the South Pole. It's still a fascinating story, and I think I'll leave the last word here to. Ivar Hamre, I I think that's how you say it, Ivar Hamre, who and he was the person who wrote the first complete account in the English language of Shirase Nobu's story back in 1933, which was still, that's more than two decades after the fact, mind you. But, I mean, the expedition was largely ignored in the West for many years, for, you know, because... You know why it was ignored. But let's, let's close out with the final two paragraphs here from Hamre's write-up for the Geological, Journey, Journal, the Geological Journal of November 1933. And I quote, Strange though it may seem, this account of the Shirazi expedition is likely to be the first narrative thereof written in a European language filling, to a certain extent, a blank in the history of Antarctica. The reason for the reticence on the part of the Japanese themselves with regard to the expedition is not easy to discover. It is obvious that the expedition of Lieutenant Shirase and his brave companions was a fine undertaking. When the Kainan Maru left Tokyo on her way to open up the south, her sailing was indeed a new departure for more than one sense of the word. As a feat of seamanship, it cannot be denied, it was glorious. We have the words of the officers of the Fram, Amundsen ship, that they would not have ventured to cover half the course in such a craft as the Kainan Maru. Persecuted by a continuous series of prolonged foul storms, even through the so-called Pacific Ocean, this plucky little vessel fought her way farther on through the roaring 40s and the foggy 50s and the icy what-not 60s and 70s the very edge of the Antarctic continent and back again. Such an exploit would seem to warrant that the name of Naokichi Nomura should be remembered among the great navigators. As an Antarctic venture, the Shirase expedition should be judged not on the shortage of 10 degrees from its original goal, but in the light of the fact that this was a totally new departure in Japanese exploration based on no previous experience, which, in polar regions, is perhaps more important than anywhere else. In the light of this fact, the Japanese venture of 1911-1912 fully deserves its place, up till now, left rather blank, in Antarctic history. And that is where we'll leave it for today. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast wherever it is that you cast your pods. This podcast is on most of the major platforms, right? You know, your Apples, your Google, Boss Podcasts, your Stitchers, your Pandoras, Amazon Podcasts, probably some others. If it is not on your favorite platform, let me know and I will try to get it on there. You can find the Twitter for this podcast at Just Another Cast where you can find uh, daily tidbits of Japanese uh, history trivia and you can email the show at justanotherjerkpodcast at gmail.com and you can find all of that information on the website tinyurl.com slash jerkpod that's all for me I'm Jonathan Isaacson and I'm out peace